Makers of Sport Podcast, Episode 66, with Jeremy Darlow. Welcome to episode 66 of the Makers of Sport podcast. I'm your host, Adam Martin, at T. Adam Martin on Twitter. Today, I'm very happy to welcome Jeremy Darlow to the podcast. Jeremy is director of brand marketing at Adidas for their football and baseball brands and has been with the company since 2008. During his time at Adidas, Jeremy has had the pleasure of working with sports brands such as Notre Dame, UCLA, University of Michigan, and then athletes such as Dwight Howard, RG3, and Lionel Messi. Jeremy is also the author of the book Brands Win Championships, which is a book that educates college athletic departments on elevating their brand to elite levels and also how branding affects recruiting. Welcome to the show, Jeremy. I appreciate you taking the time to come aboard. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So I, I did give uh, I gave a bit of a brief introduction, but I'd like to kind of give you an opportunity to go a little bit more in depth in your story. Can you tell us uh, a little bit about your background and then sort of how you got into sports and what really kind of leads us where we are today? Yeah, so my background uh, is kind of starts in college, quite honestly. I know it's, a, it's kind of a longer story, but I'll cut it short. But the the thing that's a little bit unique about me is that I, I had an idea pretty early on of what I wanted to do. I remember when I was in college, I guess about 15 years ago or so now, I took a psychology class and I fell in love with it. And I knew at that point that I wanted to be in that space in some way. I ended up looking at the, the job market for uh, psychology. There were no jobs at the time. So I quickly decided that I needed to figure out a way to get involved in that space, but I do it in, in a way that uh, was more realistic. So I added marketing or excuse me, business to that and it, marketing came out as the, the solution of it. And once I started taking classes and learning more about it, reading about marketing, brand marketing started to, to sort of float to the top of the, the spaces that I enjoyed most. And when I graduated, I knew, I knew that I wanted to run brand marketing for one of the big football brands uh, at the time. And being local here in Portland, Oregon, I had a couple of options. And I started my career actually moving down to San Francisco and working for some companies down there and doing brand marketing down there. And I, I was uh, lucky enough to come back up. My grandparents were, were getting older. It was, uh, it was important for me to be, to be at home uh, while, that, while they, were, uh, they were aging. And I was lucky enough after uh, a stint at a, another local company doing brand marketing to get an opportunity to work for Adidas and became ultimately the uh, director of, of brand marketing for, for football and baseball. Um, during that time, uh, well before that time, actually, when I graduated school, I started to write all of my ideas down in a book. Um, I still remember the moment I was in a status meeting with a, uh, a boss at the time. I didn't like the job. I was kind of zoning out thinking about, you know, what am I doing here right now? This isn't my passion. And in that moment, in my head, I'm not only thinking that I'm not doing what I want to do, but I'm also thinking there is something out there that I know I love and I love sports and I love sports marketing, the combination of the two. So I decided at that point to write down all my ideas in a journal. Uh, and that journal 
became um, something that I had with me at all times, and any ideas that I had in my head would go down in that journal. And, and at that point, I decided as well that I, you know, I'm going to write a book, and I just wanted to hold it in my hand. Uh, last year, I was fortunate enough to actually publish that book and, and hold it in my hands, and it's, it's become something much bigger and um, larger than, than, than anything I could have ever imagined, and that's where I'm, where I'm at now. Very cool. Well, and and we were kind of talking before we started recording. I, I did buy the book, or actually, uh, you sent me a copy of the book, and then I later bought three copies for clients of mine in college athletics. Um, it's a great... Sometimes it's always good to kind of have an outside source to come in and and sort of reinforce maybe what you've been telling them all along. So um, one thing I love that you say in the book is that everything starts by building perception, and perception is reality. So can you elaborate on that a little bit, and how easy is it to build a story compared to other winning, recruiting, and the money side of athletics? Yeah, well, I think one of the things that you're referring to is the, the life cycle that I talk about in the book, and there's four pillars to the cycle. It starts with perception, and perception leads to recruiting, recruiting leads to winning, and then winning ultimately leads to money. For me, the, the most malleable of those pillars is perception. I think as marketers, we are able to create stories that change people's perceptions and change people's minds. And perception is the start of all of that. So if, if I can create a story that changes the perception of 17, 18-year-old high school blue chip athletes that this brand is something that you want to be part of, that's going to in turn improve recruiting. And then from there, the stats show better recruiting, bringing in more talent. It's, it's obvious to say, but you know, this, the rating systems that are out there, the programs that bring in the four stars, the five stars consistently, but also the programs that are winning consistently and challenging for national championships. From there, you have a winning program that's going to only uh, encourage its boosters, its alumni, to invest more in that program. And that money that you invest back into the program only feeds to further a stronger perception. So the cycle continues around and around, but it starts with perception. Everything starts there. Very cool, and I think um, when you mention alumni, let's uh, let's kind of talk about <laughs> making old men angry a little bit here. I think uh, I think most of us know that <laughs> old men in suits tend to uh, run college sports. The boosters, the corporate sponsors, even uh, even in some cases, maybe aging athletic directors. Uh, it, it seems almost that no sport in the world <laughs> do old men have such power. Maybe other than FIFA and the NFL, than than the NCAA and college sports. I do love your line about making old men <laughs> angry is your job, and and truthfully, I think it's all of our jobs as creative and marketing people in this world. Um, discuss that moment in the book and sort of how to combat making old men angry. Yeah. So one of the subtitles uh, in that opening chapter is making old men angry and why I love my job. I say that with some empathy because I consider myself a traditionalist. Um, and, and when I say making old men angry, you know, I think tradition is evolving and the traditionalist is, is, sometimes not as excited about that as some of the younger generation has been. Right. Um, and it's a balance. You know, I think we, as marketers, have to figure out how to maintain a strong relationship with boosters and the 
these fans that have been there through and through for a number of years, but then also how do you attract the top talent? And I think the, the, this older gen- generation, and I would consider myself probably somewhere on the cusp of that older generation uh, being traditional with myself, I have to, as a fan, understand that by changing something, it's not just for the sake of changing, it's changing to attract an 18-year-old. And we're thinking about their minds and what they're into. And again, it doesn't need to be a wholesale change by any means in every case. But in some cases, it does call for evolving in order to attract those recruits. And at the end of the day, young, old, whatever, everybody wants to win. And in order to win, you have to bring in top talent. And in order to bring in top talent, it goes back to that, that cycle perception has to be, um, it has to be malleable and you have to be able to use that to your advantage. And in some cases, kids are going to be into uniforms or the facilities or just the story that you tell them uh, amongst all of your programs, amongst all of your community. We all have to be able to recognize that in order to win, it's the talent that comes in and it's infused into a program. And the stories need to, they need to evolve in order to get there. Well, and I think even just to kind of add to it, um, from from my perspective as a designer, I think that just culture in general pays a lot more attention to things like visuals and how things look. If you think about companies like Apple that have come about, and um, even though they may not completely understand it, they sort of have this general feeling that there's a, a nice aesthetic to this. And and it almost seems like that back years ago, and and I I believe you're a millennial, right? I Are am, you? yeah. Yeah, so I'm. I'm an old, I, I'm at the the end of it. I'm at yeah, the I'm, end. I'm the same. I'm an older millennial too. So it's kind of you kind of get to straddle this fence almost. Um, but you know, I think historically people probably didn't pay that much attention to uniforms, right? I mean, it was just kind of like this is. It was more about the name, like this is who I'm putting on my chest. I don't really care what the uniform looks like. But for for some reason, um, culturally, that has changed over the last like ten years. And, uh, and it's really interesting to see how that sort of is playing into, into the perception and also being able to market programs and that type of thing, that, that those things are important to, to some of these guys. Let's, um, let's talk about the, uh, if we know the, that or the organs of the world sort of have been able to innovate and build a brand from the ground up without what one would consider a, a lengthy history in college football. But how about some of the smaller programs? I, for example, I went to uh, an FCS school. So what advice would you have for, and, and actually just to even the proud alumnus in me has to state that this FCS school has a, a coach in the College Football Hall of Fame, Eastern Kentucky University, um, and a couple national championships. But what advice would you give to folks that aren't necessarily a part of that power five and that big money and, and uh, promotion that comes along with it. How do they evolve and grow their brands at that level? Well, the thing is, it's, uh, the philosophies don't change whether you're, you know, a power five or not. I think that in order to succeed, you have to look at it as a philosophy. You have to say that wherever I am, whenever I am, I need to be able to think about things in terms of perception and how people are looking at me. What people think of me is going to dictate how successful I am. So if you're, you know, a small school in the Northeast, your competition is probably regional at the time. So start there. Say to yourself, I want to build a story that's authentic to my program that will differentiate me amongst the four or five schools surrounding that, that region. I want to then own the conference. 
from owning the conference, I want to build that out and, and win uh, a national championship. And you have to start somewhere. I, I don't think you can take a program that has no tradition, that has no story, and expect it in two to three years to suddenly be competing for national championships. Everything starts somewhere. And I think it's important for everybody to look at, uh, at those things that they can manage. They can, they can win the city at the, at the front of a strategy. They can win a state at the front of a strategy. They can then win a region. They can then win a conference. They can then compete for a national championship. You have to start somewhere. Is it important for them to kind of keep in perspective that maybe, like for example, my alma mater is within 30 minutes of the University of Kentucky, which is an SEC school. Um, is it important for them to kind of keep in perspective that they may not ever be able to get to that level? Like what, so how do they judge that the wins, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, I think if, if, you're, if you're not in the SEC and you're in SCS school, you need to be realistic about what you can and can't do. You know, I think, you know, I was just recently reading uh, a book by Al Reese, who is a legend in marketing. And one of the things that he suggests is not to be concerned about being number two sometimes. Sometimes number two is a great position to be in. And number two can sometimes evolve into number one. But you, often we want to just skip steps. We want to say that we're the, we're the, the seventh best team in this conference. We want to be number one. Well, you gotta, you gotta build that. And I understand there's not a lot of patients in the industry these days, but for administrators who should be there for uh, a number of years, the same way that these programs that are now challenging for national championships, who 15 years ago were not even challenging for their conference championships, they have 10 year plans. They have 15 year plan. It's a long-term strategy. At the front of that strategy, you have to be realistic. You have to say to yourself, okay, in three years, we're going to be here. In five years, we're going to be there. Fifteen years, that's the pinnacle, and that's where you want to ultimately be, but don't think that's going to happen at the front. Yeah, and I think it also kind of just goes to show how important winning is, too. If you think about North Dakota State and what they've done in FCS football, you know, from a recruit's perspective, it almost seems more attractive to go there than to go to, say, a, a, a lower-tier BCS school, in a sense. Yeah, and I think if, if you market it as such, if you tell that story, I think you can absolutely use that to your advantage if you're in North Dakota State. I think that's one of the, the things that's out there as an opportunity right now, and I was thinking the same thing when I was watching the, the championship, uh, this I guess, about two three weeks ago. Um, it's, it's absolutely an opportunity. It's just a story that hasn't been told. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's talk about, I, I think that one of the biggest issues, um, at least in terms of creativity in college athletics from a marketing side, is that there seems to be this copycat culture. And and when you talk about telling your own story, if you're, if you're ripping someone off or stealing other people's headlines or that type of thing, you're not really telling your own story. And each year we sort of see athletic departments go to uh, places like COSIDA and NACMA and those sort of uh, conferences that are geared towards college athletics. And it, it's it's very sort of typical to see what someone else is doing and to automatically assume that will work for you. And it's almost like there's this big bubble of people or a vacuum of people working in college athletics. How do we get people to think outside the box and to be different, even if their own personalities and comfort levels are kind of more along the lines of the quote way we've always done mentality? Well, one of the things that I put in the book is if you're an athletic administrator or a coach, you're a brand manager. And I don't think the, that uh, individual 
in the past has thought that way. If I am working on a cola brand, I'm not going to go put the same messaging out as the leading brand and expect to win. I'm going to have to do something different. I'm going to have to differentiate myself in order to succeed as a product manager and, and in order for our product to succeed in, in and of itself. I think that the thing that has to happen for this to stick and for these upcoming programs and these rising programs to sustain themselves is you have to carve out a differentiated story. You have to find a way to pull out those unique elements of your program and consistently tell them to uh, the, the city, to the state, to the region, and then ultimately to the, the nation. Uh, I, I think at the end of the day, the most important thing that I can say to anybody that's working in this space is read up on brand marketing and consider yourself from this day forward a brand manager because that's the way that people are going to start taking notice of your program. Yeah, and I, I would definitely agree with that. I think that's well said. Um, and I think that probably some of the best coaches understand that they are a brand and their program is a brand. If you think about uh, just recently some of the people on the uh, national radar, Dabo Sweeney and uh, even Urban Meyer and Steve Spurrier for years was such a brand even though he's retired. Uh, and in basketball, guys like Coach K, John Calipari, Tom Izzo, uh, it seems like coaches at, at certain levels, they sort of understand that and they're the most successful. But what about in athletic departments, people kind of read uh, your book or and understand they understand what it takes it, it almost seems like in some athletic departments especially the bigger ones the coaches are kind of untouchable they sort of just do whatever they want and they're pretty much free to run wild how do you have any advice for say lower level ADs or just staff on the marketing side of sports to try to get a voice in with their coaches and say hey this is important branding is actually important to the program read this book that type of thing I think in any company any culture change is going to be you know, in a lot of ways, in my opinion, it's going to be bottom up. I mean, I think that the, the new generation coming up is going to have new ideas. And it's not to say that they're right. It's just to say that they haven't been in the space for long enough to have something cemented in their mind. And I think that's a, that fresh approach is healthy. In order for that fresh approach, however, to get up to the top, you have to start somewhere. In the same way that I say, you're not going to build a national championship from some from a program that has been last in the conference for the last five years overnight, you're not going to insert a story into a brand across all functions, across all programs, across all coaches and athletic administrators overnight either. In a corporation, it's the same way. You have to start with wins, small wins, you know, and and those small wins turn into medium-sized wins and those medium-sized wins turn into large wins. And once you get to a large win and people start catching wind of it, at the coach's level, at the athletic director level, then those big moves start to happen. But for me, I think the easiest way and the quickest way right now to make change and to to get a story to start sticking to a point where you can present it up to the the, the legends of the coaching world and the legends in the athletic administration world, and there's a lot of them out there, and they've done incredible things. Social is a space right now. Everybody jumps on it, and it's, you know, it's an exciting thing, and it's Everyone's trying to find their own their own fifteen minutes online with with their channel. I, you know, I would say it's not about that fifteen minutes. It's about that fifteen years. And and what are you doing right now to build something that lasts and and evolves into something? So fifteen years down the road, you're one of those legends. You know, I think social media gives you a chance to be consistent with one story. 
So create that story, whether you're, a, you know, an entry-level grad assistant or you're an associate AD or, or what have you, create that story and start telling that story across your platforms, across Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat. People will start to say those words, repeat those words. You can then take that, that success and, and ladder it up to, uh, again, those folks that have been in the business for a long, long time. Right. And I think there's actually an interesting uh, sort of parallel here. There's a, there's a, uh, a well-known designer named Michael Beirut. He, he is a partner at Pentagram who's done a lot of work in the sports industry, but also other industries. And he actually, there's a video floating around social media right now about him defining what a great logo is. And he talks about how logos uh, today tend to be more judged on the sprint rather than the marathon. And they should be judged on the marathon. And I think there's a lot of, there's a, there's a parallel there with exactly what you said. What do you think? Absolutely. I mean, a brand is a marathon. It's not, it's not a sprint. I think a lot of programs right now are looking for that silver bullet and it's not a silver bullet. And, you know, we, we, we touched on it earlier, doing what the other programs are doing and just in a slight iteration is not going to build your brand. Do it, do it if it's authentic to you. But the most important thing is start with a plan, start with understanding who you are and the, you know, it's, it's, how I laid out the book, the most important element at the front is perception. Understand who you are and what people think of you and what you have going for you. From there, once you get a good understanding of that, then write a story that's authentic to who you are, that's different. You know, don't, don't try to be like everybody else. Just be who you are. And once you write that story, then you can start telling it and tell it for a number of years. And I, and I guarantee you, good, bad, or otherwise, if you tell the same story for 10 years, in 10 years, you're known for that. You're going to be that. If you tell that same story for 10 weeks, I can't guarantee you that's going to stick. It probably won't. You have to look at this thing as a marathon, absolutely. Very cool. Well, I do have to kind of speak to design a little more. A lot of designers listen to the show, and it's sort of, obviously, I mentioned it intersects at the at creativity and sports, there's a lot of designers working in house that listen and sort of just to take a step further. Uh, I know that you have an appreciation of good design. I mean, just your book in general is, is well designed and well laid out. What, what role do you think design has in college athletics and why should athletics care about design in addition to branding? As we know that branding isn't just a logo or visuals, it's more of a strategy and, and overarching thing, but what role does design have in all of that? Well, I don't think they're different. I mean, I think your design and how you bring your identity to life is, is all part of who you are as a brand. And I think the, the visual, you mentioned it earlier in, in the show, the, the, the visual has become so important. But I, I, would, I would argue that it's always been important. You know, if I'm an athlete, you know, when I was playing, look good, feel good, play good was what I lived by. And I wanted to look good on the court. I thought that was really important to me. Kids are no different today. You know, the, people are people don't change quite as much as we think they do. Psychologically, you look at what Maslow said, his hierarchy of needs is still relevant. I just retweeted something last night about Maslow. I mean, he, what he said and what we deem important is still very important. And how you, how you look 15 years ago is just as important as how it is now. It, it's just that now identity and design has found its way into uniforms and accessories, and uh, obviously through digital content and social media, all of those things, design is crucial. And I think it starts with the, the, the thing that some companies and some uh, organizations fall victim of is they want to go straight to design. 
And that's where I think you can, you can trip up. Right. You got to start with a story. What is your story? You know, and that's, that's the crux of every brand. Every successful brand has a North star. Once you have a North star, you take that to your designers that are incredibly uh, talented. And, and there's so much talent on online right now. And in the Indus industry, you take that story to those designers and then they bring it to life via the uniform, via the stadium, via social media. Those two things, again, they're, they're just, they're one and the same. It's just a matter of the cadence with which you start to activate. Right. It's interesting. It's almost like fingers. They need to be kind of ingrained together as opposed to, I think even kind of the negative side of it is you were mentioning the um, people kind of starting with design, but also the reverse of design just being icing, right? Like the cake's already decorated or the cake's already built. You're just putting icing on it. And, and I've always sort of been of the mindset that design is like a very strategic thing that needs to be understood, uh, you know, and baked in from the beginning. If you think about some of the best companies in the world, Apple, Mercedes-Benz, Target, Facebook even, they all have design sort of at that executive level. There's even stories about Mark Zuckerberg moving the design department right next to his uh, his office because he believes in the importance of it. And and then doing them doing more than just solving uh, visual problems, but kind of applying like a systems-based thinking. What are your thoughts on having executive level design officers in sports? Maybe the equivalent would be, I guess, an athletic director of design, so to speak. I mean, I think it's really important. If you look at an agency, if you look at um, some of the larger brands, you, you often have, you know, a brand manager with an art director at their hip. You know, those, those two individuals need to be on the same page at all times because as soon as, you have a strategy, it's, it's up to this artist to bring it to life. And, and they, they need to be uh, working in, in conjunction with one another because if, if I'm just feeding or forcing something down on an art department's uh, throat without them believing in it, they're not going to bring it to life in the way that, that you imagine or the, the way that it probably deserves. But if they're part of that process and they're bringing in their, their way of thinking and, and oftentimes it's different and that's a positive, then you're going to get something a lot more impactful and, and also something that's again, different. I think one of the things that I put in the book, uh, and I truly believe it and it doesn't always happen, but it happens, happens sometimes, you know, artists want to build their portfolio. Agencies want to build their portfolio. Brand managers want to build brands. And it's a little bit of a different thing. I, if I put out a piece of art that goes, goes crazy online and has a ton of, engagement, a ton of shares, I could be famous as an artist within a matter of days. That's how artists can think, and that's how agencies can think. If a, if a TV campaign breaks through and becomes an award-winning campaign, that agency is success. That piece of art and that TV campaign may not have contributed to where that brand wants to go. So those two things are not always on the same page. And it's to your to your point, to your question, in order to ensure that that doesn't happen, you got to bring them in early. You have to have them part of the process and have them ingrained in the culture because that's what a story is. A story is establishing a, establishing a culture where the person picking up the phones who's taking ticket orders is telling the, is telling the same story on the phone as the groundskeeper is, as the athletic director is, as the starting quarterback is, as the starting point guard is. It's a culture. And if that design team is not brought into that culture early on, 
it's not going to come to life in the way that, that you would imagine as a brand, uh, brand manager. Yeah, very good, man. And and honestly, like I would I would even say just as a designer speaking to other designers that are listening to this, I'm always advocating that designers they need to understand business. They need to understand the reasons for why they're doing stuff. It's not about just making cool pictures, right? It's design needs to be viewed even from their own lens as a strategic asset to the program. If and if they can do that, they're going to get more respect within other departments as opposed to, you know, they might not be viewed as like the weird art kids anymore. <laughs> you know, if they want to be an artist, yeah. art is subjective, right? Like you can, you create art because you, you feel a certain way. Whereas design, there's always an objective. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I consider myself an artist in a different way. You know, I, I, I tell stories and, and to me, that's an art. And in order to tell stories, the visuals are crucial. And, and so two artists need to, to put their brains together and, and thinking those those terms, and, and to your point, I think it's a really good point, and it's good for uh, you know uh, the younger generation that's coming up to think this way. If an agency comes in and pitches me on work, but they don't speak to the long term vision of the brand, I know right away that they're not thinking about the brand itself. They're not thinking about uh, being in it for the long haul. They're thinking about again, how do I break through with that one idea? They want to win an award. <laughs> win yeah, awards, right? Yeah, I like yeah. that award. And that's, <laughs> it, the, the first person that comes in and starts speaking the language of the brand, I will take them as if they are, you know, a, a seven out of ten on the on the talent scale versus a ten out of ten uh, from a person that's not concerned about the the well being of the brand. If that makes sense, and, you know, that just doesn't happen often. But when it does, you know, as a brand manager, and it's. You know, it's kind of nice hearing this probably for designers. In my head, if, if I trust the person and I feel like he has or she has the best interest of our brand in mind, I'm much more likely to, to go with them and to partner with them. That's that's great insight. There's a there's a story in the book about a familiar flag that college football fans see at every ESPN college game day on Saturday mornings. Um, I'll let you kind of elaborate on that some, but uh, in addition to that, how can schools involve their fans in their, communi- in their communication strategies without overdoing it or coming across as trying too hard? Well, I think it can be subtle. I, mean, I, I put in the book, um, clean out your basement, essentially, with all of the, there's, there's every basement at an NCAA program, especially one that has a, a ton of tradition and has had success in the past, there's so much content that they have in those hallowed halls that they don't really understand to be used for um, uh, their fans to, to, to be ambassadors around the country. One of the, I went to Oregon State, and one of my favorite moments as a college student was we went on a run uh, to the Fiesta Bowl, we went 11-1, and you know that hadn't happened in probably 40, 50 years. We went to the Rose Bowl in the 60s, and that was our last big moment. And I remember there was so much excitement around town, and one of the things that always stuck with me was this van that started to drive to all of the games. And the van, and you know, this was in um, the early 2000s, so a lot of this stuff hadn't happened, especially in the state of Oregon. This van was covered in orange and black. It had a um, a life-size replica of our starting running back on the top of it. Uh, it had you know, Oregon State painted all over the side and the, the, the alma mater was, was painted on the side and the back. And it was a what they called a beaver mobile. And 
that fandom is out there for any program. That was, it was a sleeping giant of sorts in, in, in the sense that I hadn't seen that and nobody had seen that for the, the previous 40 years. But as soon as success comes around, Graham, or they went to Y program. And uh, there is a lot within an a, a athletic department where it be it, you know, old memorabilia or posters or um, anything really that you have at your disposal, you can share with your fans and they will put up with a ton of pride and that pride will permeate and it'll be osmosis for the people around them. And if those people around them have yet to pick an allegiance, meaning they have yet to say, I'm a fan of X, Y, or Z team, you're, they're much more likely to become fans of that program just because of the passion that you are giving off as a fan. I think that those programs have the opportunity. I think sometimes we're afraid of the fans because, you know, fan comes from fanatic and sometimes we can be fanatical. We can get upset. We can air our grievances online. But, you know, the other times where we are preaching how much we love these schools and how much we love these athletes and how much pride we have in them. And in order to, to leverage that or in order to benefit from it, you have to fuel it. There's fire that you just have to fuel the fire. Right. Well, one thing, and kind of just switching paths here, one thing I find interesting in the book is that you break down and talk specifically about some programs such as Oregon football, Iowa wrestling, Duke basketball. And and I always try to instill in clients in athletic program, sorry, instill in clients in athletic programs that an athletic program in college really has multiple brands. You sort of have the overarching uh, umbrella brand, which is this the entire athletic department brand. Then you have the specific sports brand, and then you have the current teams brand. You know, if we think about different teams from different years, sometimes those teams are nicknames and that type of thing. And each brand has different personalities, so to speak. A colleague of mine, actually, who used to be a global managing director at Ogilvy, which is a, a famous ad agency for people that aren't familiar, he likes to state that brands are a name, a color, and a personality. That's how he kind of sums it up. And, and I think there's some great crossover in that statement in regards to the different teams and personalities in an, in an athletic department. And you kind of touch on that. Can you elaborate on this thinking from a brand management perspective? And, and how does one keep things cohesive with these segmented brands? Well, I think the first thing is you stop segmenting. Um, every, every corporation is a brand at the top and underneath you have sub-brands. But every one of those sub-brands should be feeding back up to that uh, that ultimate brand, that that brand at the pinnacle, and and it's the same way. You know, if you, if you are uh, a university, you have a brand as a university, and underneath that, you have a football program, you have a basketball program, you have a women's basketball program, you have a, a softball program, etc. If I'm saying one thing as a softball program, uh, but I'm saying a, a completely different thing as a, a women's basketball program then I don't have something in my head to identify the university athletic program. I have, to your point, an identity for that particular year of softball, and I have an identity for that particular year of women's basketball. And that's a miss. The thing that is a major, major advantage for an athletic program is they have multiple teams and new teams every year. So once they establish at the top, at their university-level brand, who they want to be and what they want to represent, what their story is, suddenly they have, you know, 12, 13 different programs 
and all of the different athletes within those programs and all of the different coaches within those programs every single year saying that same thing and, and being ambassadors for that one story. That's, that's, there's so much to that and there's so much of an advantage to that that you can get a story, you can make a story stick with that formula within one to two years without a doubt in my mind. And you could be suddenly something unique within an athletic world that's, you know, 300 and some odd teams large. Uh, and, and by being differentiated in that space so quickly, that's when you start to see the impact. That's when you start to see the recruits coming in that fit that mold. That's when you start to see the fans coming in and telling that story that you've been, you've been establishing through your athletics. And that's when you start to win. Very cool. Well, let's uh, just for a, a brief moment, let's kind of talk uniforms. We, we, we touched on it some earlier, but it almost seems that right now there's kind of this trend to be as loud as possible. Um, and we know Oregon is changing things up every game. We know that, um, you know, there's some other schools that maybe try to be like Oregon that don't necessarily do a good job of it. But I sort of think there's kind of an Apple like swag that comes with clean. If you think about Alabama or uh, the uniforms that uh, the icy white Texas A&M uniforms were very clean. I really enjoyed those. And I think A&M has the, they've remained clean, obviously from uh, Adidas and you guys. My question is, if everyone is doing loud at some point, you know, with the mat helmets and, and all that, and that becomes the norm and, and when does it sort of backfire? Like when does kind of going back into like this little clean look become what really makes you kind of stand out? If you think about putting a super clean ad in times square with just like a bunch of white space and one word or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I think that just says confidence. You know, I just screamed confidence in my head. The cleanliness and the simplicity says, I don't have to be what everybody else thinks we need to be because I am confident in, in our brand. I am confident in who, who I am uh, as an individual. I think that, that idea permeates all walks of life. And I think it's also extremely relevant in the, in the case of uh, NCAA programs. That right now, there's only one program known for uniforms even though everybody else is doing them, it's become light noise. I w- actually recently went through an exercise where I was Googling uh, uh, from one conference, every school's name plus the word uh, football. So, you know, XYZ football. And in every single instance, one of the suggested searches on top of that search was uniform. And I think in eight out of 10 searches with a helmet, you know? So every one of these schools is now talking about uniforms and it's even the schools that haven't had any success in the last 10 years. They're, they're creating new uniforms thinking that, wow, that's, that's the way to get the kid, but it's not right now. It was maybe seven, eight years ago when it was new. But right now that kid is going to visit five schools and every one of those five schools in just about every case, is going to be talking about their new uniform the following year. So that story is not going to be unique anymore, and it's not something that I think can be used as a differentiator. Unless, to your point, you just get so audacious with it that you can't help but talk about it. But I think even at that point, because we're so far into this thing, you know, people are seeing through it, and it's not as impactful as obviously it once was. That's a good point. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that, uh, it's kind of, if you're, if you're only relying on uniforms, it's really kind of goes back to that icing on a cake mentality. You're putting icing on something where there's like no, 
it's empty inside. <laughs> it's hollow on the inside, right? Um, Absolutely. I think, and, and to that point, I think it's a really, really important point, and especially for you, for your listeners, because it's design driven. I think a lot of programs are creating uniforms for the sake of having uniforms. Again, thinking that that's what eighteen-year-olds want, and they absolutely do. Again, it, they like to look good, look good, feel good, play good. But the the long-term benefit of using a uniform, in my opinion, is to tell a story. And when you work with that design team at the front and you've established that story, and then those uniforms are built against that story. And every year, it's not just a, a cool uniform for the sake of cool uniform. It's a uniform that speaks to this one idea. And every year builds against that. That is where the, the, the teams that start to think in those terms will rise to the top. Whether they've been winning or not, I think those are the teams that think in brand marketing terms. Those are the ones that are going to start to win. Yeah, and, and I think even one one example of that is something you mentioned in the book where uh, for the 2012 Notre Dame Shamrock Series, uh, Adidas, you guys worked with Notre Dame to send out a, specific, a specially designed package. Uh, for people that may not understand some of the behind the scenes, can you touch on that and give us some insight into that case study and how sometimes like that becomes a story within itself to break through the clutter? Every media outlet is, is covering uniforms today. And with that becomes almost impossibility of differentiating yourself within those outlets. So one of the tactics that, that I've used uh, in my professional career is how do you deliver the uniform or how do you deliver the story in a unique way that almost uh, brings the story to life in and of itself? I think sometimes because there is so much noise, you get a tweet, you get a blog post, you get something that's sort of an afterthought. And, you have to think as a brand marketer, how do I get this story out there knowing that I'm up against that? And the, the way that you deliver the packaging, uh, the way that you deliver the, the story can become a story in and of itself. And, and in that case, once you get the package to be, the, to be a story, the thing that's inside gets the coverage that you were desiring uh, from the front, right? Whereas your competition are simply the sending photos of uniforms on mannequins or photos of uniforms on athletes, the same way that every other program is doing it, by doing it differently, by delivering it differently, you're going to get more coverage. So we have to think about as marketers and, and as designers, we have to think about how do we, how do we curate stories in every single facet, in every single way that you can touch uh, a story? How do you differentiate it? And that packaging, how does that packaging relate back to the ultimate story that we're trying to tell? and the, the positioning that we're trying to establish for this brand. So, you know, packaging is, is a certainly, packaging in the sense of how you're delivering a story is certainly a way to get that story out there and, and, and get more coverage than you would have otherwise. Very cool. And I think, you know, one way you mentioned it, that teams are delivering stories is through Twitter. And, and I see, obviously I follow a lot of athletic programs and uh, a lot of people tend to still use Twitter as a megaphone where they're just sort of like, um, even even in some cases, just transcribing what happened. I mean, it's funny because like fans are watching the game, um, and and I think that if you're just transcribing in digital form exactly what happened, you're really just kind of being redundant. So in in, in real time, how can how can teams better engage with some alternative strategies as opposed to just saying, "Oh, touchdown," you know, Johnny Football or whatever? It's a really good point, and I think first of all, I think 
athletic administrations and, and marketing departments should, and you know, hopefully most of us are doing this now, should consider each platform as unique entities and, and used for different things. So for us and for me specifically, I look at Facebook as yesterday's news. I want, I want more coverage. I want more photos. I want more videos the next day so I can just dive into what happened. Uh, it's not the real time. The real time is Twitter. Twitter is happening now. It's, it's, it's uh, social media's um, reality TV is what I always sort of uh, compare it to. That's happening right now, but to your point, you got to find a differentiated way to, to tell a story. I'll come back to that. Instagram is art, you know, and I think every one of your listeners is probably on Instagram for that reason. That 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 is a space that is driven by artists. Snapchat is uh, this new thing that people are trying to get their hands on and understand and wrap their heads around. You know, for me, I think Snapchat's a great way to um, award your your most most loyal customers or fans or followers or what have you with insight into what's coming up. You know, I think if it's it's going to disappear and someone's going to capture it, but that that mechanism in and of itself just just creates urgency and creates hype. And use that, you know, use that hype to build against, uh, you know, if it is a uniform launch, then use Snapchat and, and say it's coming and show a piece of it. Kids will get excited about that. Fans will get excited about that. They will take a, they'll take a, a screen grab of it, share it, and suddenly you have a teaser that's going to live online and get people excited about what is coming. And that ultimate unveil is that much bigger because of that, right? Um, they all need to be used in different ways. I think Twitter, to your, to, to your point, I've been noticing the same thing. It's like everybody in that feed is just repeating what happened. But I'm watching the games. So I already know what happened. Right. You know, and if I don't know what happened, I'm going to go to, more than likely, I'm going to be, be thinking about ESPN. You know, I'm going to be thinking about GameCast and, and those things. So I don't need to, to your, to your uh, phrase, regurgitated content. What I want is the, the new angle on it or if things are going well, in my head as a fan, I mean, I'm really excited about my, my team right now. We're up 30 in the fourth quarter, and we're on our way to a, a conference championship. Start feeding me uh, content that I can use as uh, an ambassador for the program. Start giving me uh, that content that I, that I need to share, that I want to share at that point, because I'm so pumped to the world. And that content should just be um, something that, that, that screams your story. You know, we just did this, and it's because we are this, right? That's what I would want as a fan. I want to, to be able to then help build the program and use that momentum to help build the program and scream from the top of the mountains exactly what makes us different. Because in, in most cases, when things are going well, it's also, and, and when I, I should back up, when in most cases when... Um, you're coming down to the wire and, and sports are becoming more and more important. For instance, bowl games are coming up or conference championships are coming up or March Madness is coming up. You're also in the thick of recruiting. So you're, you're in the middle of trying to convince next year's class to join your program. So in that, in that state of mind, if you are giving those fans content with which they can spread the word of what makes you unique, I think you're, you're taking advantage in a way that nobody else is. It shouldn't be a news outlet. It should be a way to evangelize and it should be a way to get people excited about brands. 
Well, and, and I think just from talking about other media and, and different platforms and they're each, they each should be used differently as tools. Uh, you mentioned the importance of radio in the book when it comes to getting your message out. Um, however, just since we're, we're on a podcast right now, I'd almost like to just take it a step further. What do you think about podcasts fitting into team marketing strategies and other than just releasing radio or, you know, most of them kind of just release radio broadcasts in podcast form, but developing unique content for podcasts. Well, from an athletic department standpoint, I, I go back to uh, two things. Obviously, everything starting with story, but I, I think about recruits and I think about fans. And if I'm a recruit, you know, I can't take anything from a university. There's, there's violations that are associated with that, right? But I can walk away and go download a free podcast from a local media outlet that is speaking to exactly what makes this program different and this program unique, right? Or I can, you know, a program could curate their own content and put it online and that individual can walk away and listen to that over and over and over again. I think there's a ton of value in uh, digital media and, and digital radio uh, today that, that can be used, but it's not being used. I think the, you know, the, the old guard is still out there with, you know, let's talk about, next week's game and let's talk about what's happening right now, but it's not being used to evangelize and give tools to evangelize and convince people to um, not only root for a program, but commit to a school and play and live there for the next four to five years. So I think there's, there's a ton of value there. I just don't think it's happening yet. Right. Yeah. And, and I think it's going to be interesting in the next 10 years, what happens? Cause we obviously know about serial um, and you, you may know about startup podcasts. I don't know if you've heard that one yet or not, but they're uh they're pretty. They're kind of overly produced, in my opinion. I mean, they're more like radio shows, but just the kind of organic stuff, like even grabbing a kid and getting just like a uh, maybe he's playing a game, right? Like maybe in your facilities you have uh, in the say football facilities you have a, a television and they have like an Xbox or something. Just like getting down there and talking to him. What are you working on? What are you doing right now? What what types of things are you interested outside of this? You know, that could be that could be interesting. Um, and kind of wrapping up here, uh, you mentioned the a theory that you you have called the j curve that is sort of a visual launch strategy that extends the time in which companies have to talk about and build hype around their releases can you give listeners some insights into that and maybe discuss um how texas a&m supported that yeah it's it's one of those philosophy philosophies that i've used in um just about every industry that i've been in and i learned it from someone else i learned it from from a mentor that i had a long long time ago and it comes from um, the automobile industry and also the, the, the film industry. If you think about a new movie, uh, you normally, if it's a big, big movie and a big release, a blockbuster film, you're going to hear about that probably at least six months in advance. And oftentimes, for the, for the massive ones, it's a year in advance in some way, shape, or form. It might not be like a trailer quite yet, but there's an announcement at the front that says this is coming. And that announcement is really important because if you can if you can create a, a level of buzz at that announcement and then sustain it to a degree, you've already gone from zero to say 60, you know, in, in 24 hours. And rather than starting at the, at zero and trying to build from there, create that buzz at the front, you know, use content and storytelling at the front and then sustain that until you get to a place where you want to start building in paid media and, you know, those trailers start to come out and that more curated content starts to come out. And then 
ultimately climaxing at that release. So the, the same philosophies that are taken by a Hollywood film drop or a automobile release, they start with an announcement and they build up from there. And you can take that same approach at the NCAA level with different content releases that a program goes through, be it a uniform. Imagine taking a uniform a few months prior to the uniform and just announcing that it's coming. That in and of itself with the amount of, of passion within every single athletic department out there, I don't care if you've had a ton of success or not, people went to your school or they're from your town, they love your brand. They're going to get excited about it. And that excitement is going to build and build and build. And it, and it starts, it's the catalyst to a fire that you just need to fuel. So the announcement becomes the catalyst. You fuel through content from there until you get closer to the ultimate unveil of that uniform or, you know, uh, that, that new arena or what have you. And, and at that point, because you started early, your end goal or your end result, I should say, is much greater than it would have been if you just started cold turkey on the day of and released that uniform on a Friday and then hoped for the best. You know, you've already gotten so much hype. You've already built so much hype and demand around the unveil and just to see it you are much further along than you would have been had you just done it cold turkey. Very cool. That's great advice, man. I really appreciate that. In, in wrapping up, Jeremy, why don't you kind of give listeners um, your your online properties? Where can people find you, follow you? Where can they get the book and that type of thing? Yeah, so the the official site for the book is brandswinchampionships.com. It's just the name of the book itself. I do most of my work socially on Twitter at Jeremy Darlow, one word, it's just my name. Uh, those would be the two, the two places that you can find me the most. The book is available on Amazon.com um, and all of the, the other major online retailers. Thanks, man. I really appreciate you coming aboard the show. I, I, honestly, I just said it. I appreciate you even asking me, and it's, it's an honor to be on your show. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, man. Thanks a lot. See you. There you have it, folks. Jeremy Darlow, super smart guy right there. Um, we do actually have a special treat for you. Jeremy has given me a few download codes, and I'm going to be randomly giving these out to some listeners. So we'll start by picking a random listener who retweets this episode, retweets Jeremy's episode, and just hashtags it Makers of Sport. And, uh, and we'll, we'll pick, a, pick a person and send you a download code to get a digital version of the book. Also, um, there are currently 77 reviews in the iTunes US store. So I'll randomly choose a review from the US store and, and pick someone to give a download code to, someone that's left a five-star review. And uh, just to, just to uh, kind of elaborate, you do have to write a review for me to know that that you left one. Otherwise, just clicking the star doesn't really tell tell who did that. Otherwise, I won't know. And then also, I'll pick someone from one of the international stores. I've got a few reviews there um, and, and send a, a download code to. My next guest is going to be Aaron Masick. Aaron is a senior designer at Upper Deck and uh, he was actually going to come on the show about a year ago now, and he he was in between a move. He ended up being in between a move from the San Antonio Spurs to go work for the San Diego Padres. Uh, and now Aaron is at Upper Deck, and he's had a quite an extensive background in sports, uh, working for different organizations in in different leagues, and then now obviously being more on a, a consumer brand side with. Uh, with Upper Deck. So Aaron's going to be joining the next show. Uh, in the meantime, you can follow him on Twitter at Masick8. 
That's his Twitter account, M-A-S-I-K-8. Big thanks again to Jeremy Darlow. There's a lot of great insight in this episode. As I mentioned, he's a super smart guy. So be sure to follow him where he, he stays very active on Twitter with sharing, sharing things uh, like what he just talked about. And his Twitter account is at Jeremy Darlow, D-A-R-L-O-W. And then also brandswinchampionships.com. If you don't win one of the books and you want to buy one of the books or you just want to buy one of the books to give to your clients, which I've done before. So definitely recommend that. As I mentioned, it always helps to kind of have an extra voice sort of pushing maybe what you're trying to sell too. And then having a voice like Jeremy from Adidas is, uh, is, is very vital in that. Be sure to head over to makersofsport.com slash episodes to hear more from previous guests. And then also check out the halftime shows where I discuss more entrepreneurial things, freelance and, and that type of thing in the sports industry. Uh, also be sure to sign up for Weekend Reads, a weekly newsletter where I write exclusive content for the subscribers and I share the things that I'm reading. Uh, I'm an avid reader. I share things that inspire me for the week or just maybe kind of find some news and, and that type of thing. In addition on that list, you'll be notified in advance of upcoming guests and get podcast show notes delivered right to your inbox. Uh, and I've mentioned this before, but those newsletters are sort of morphing into another halftime. So if you like halftimes, go sign up for that email newsletter and, and it always helps support the show. So anytime there's going to be a product release, I'm working on some products to sell. The community is actively being built right now. All of those things and future guests will be announced through the newsletter. Lastly, please take one to two minutes, head over to makersofsport.com slash iTunes and write a review about your experience with the show. If you've gotten value from myself or any of the guests on this show, then please share the podcast, rate the content so that others can discover that value for themselves as well. It's all of our jobs to really kind of drive the industry forward in terms of educating others. Um, it's not necessarily business, and, and in my opinion, the athletic business isn't really a zero-sum game. I mean, we need to help each other out, and one of those ways to do that is to share this podcast, which is why I also do this for free for people. As always, I'll accept likes, ratings, or reviews on Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you happen to be listening to this show. I'm at T. Adam Martin on Twitter. The show is at Makers of Sport. Until next time, have a good week. 